Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts Paul Anderson here as ever with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, how are you this week? It's only been a week, we're doing well. <laughs> back on track man, back on the rails. We promised it and we're delivering it one week at a time. But yeah, it's good to be back and not having, you know, taken uh, three weeks off or whatever it was before uh, through various circumstances that we, you know, didn't didn't go into but but probably don't need to go into. But on this week's show, Paul... Uh, we've. I feel like we've got something of a, a sort of shift. Uh, there's something in the air. The, the sense that although the strange world we live in continues to be strange and perhaps gets stranger, there are little green shoots, right, when it comes to film um, in the foreseeable future. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about in the news section in just a moment. But for new listeners, we should say that there is a structure to this show. It's a sort of virtual audio tour of the cinema experience. Remember that? Remember when you used to go to the cinema? Do you remember what you used to do? It's going to be like going. It's going to be like my first time all over again by the time we get to go back. I think, um, which will which will be clumsy and unsatisfying. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we always culminate with uh, a, f- a feature review or a list. This is the feature element of the show when you sit down to the film itself. Today we're going to be feature reviewing. The Five Bloods. This is Spike Lee's new movie that has premiered on the Netflix platform. But before we get there, we're also going to go over uh, the other elements of the show. Those at this point are Stream Team, in which we give you some recommendations from streaming services that you can access at home whilst you're on lockdown. Before that, we've also got our popcorn movie section in which Paul and I just throw back and forth short form reviews of things that we've been watching in the last seven days. And it is seven days this time. And then um, before all of that, we'll step into the first part of the show, that's called In the Foyer, and this is where we discuss film news. And I mean, Paul, I feel like I've stood all over the idea that we just catch up as normal human beings. So be, you know, feel free to tell me how your life's going, but then we can segue seamlessly into today's news <laughs> section. Well, uh, my life, well, I basically I'm excited because there's potential, as you say, green shoots about films and cinemas reopening this week. So um, that's, that's yeah, it's been a highlight of my week, to be honest, Pete. So I'm happy to leave my life story there and we can bounce straight into what we know or what little we know, I guess, at the moment about cinemas reopening. But there has been some news and some quite interesting developments, I think, in this. Pete, um, open us up on this one. Well, yeah, so on my end, um, it is probably not a huge state secret uh, for listeners to this show that I've mentioned before, uh, my home is about 10 paces from a major cinema chain you've probably heard of it and said cinema chain probably the one you're thinking of uh, is planning to reopen I believe on July 10th now at this point I'm not sure on specifics when it comes to um, you know, numbers of people in the screen, uh, whether we're going to have, obviously, socially distanced seating. I imagine that's almost a given at this point, wouldn't you think, Paul? I'd be very surprised if there's, if it's not a dramatically different experience than what we're used to at this point. Yeah, and it raises a bunch of questions. But I mean, first and foremost, let's react to the positive side of this, which is the cinema going experience in at least some form 
seems to be on the way back. How are you feeling about this right now? Yeah, I'm. I'm excited to go back to the cinema. To be fair, like it is. It's. A, it's always been a major love of ours. Well, both of us. Obviously, we do a film podcast, and if you're into film, yeah, generally speaking, it goes hand in hand. You enjoy the cinema experience. Um, so yeah, I'd be intrigued to see what they do. And I think I had a conversation. Possibly, I think we've had a conversation about this. Possibly on the show. Possibly off air. With what do they do when they reopen? What do they show? Obviously, a lot of films have been pushed back, which we would, which we talked about at the time just before the lockdown happened. So what what are they going to screen? We've got, I think Tenet has been pushed back now to the 31st, um, Mulan on the 25th, I think, of July. So they've got they've potentially got those two big releases coming up. But if they open early July, what on earth are the cinemas going to show? Well, Pete, I can tell you, I think, well, I've got some idea um, based on an article I found on Screen Daily today. Um, a number of um, UK distributors um, have come out and put this collection together called uh, relaunching cinema content for recovery, which is somewhere in the region of 450 films that cinemas will have access to when they reopen. Now, some of this includes stuff like um, Trolls World Tour, which is quite a recent release, um, Parasite, again, a fairly recent release, but also I think Empire Strikes Back is definitely coming to view at the moment. They're advertising that they're going to reopen. Back to the Future trilogy, the Make Dark Knight Matrix trilogies, Fast and Furious films, Harry Potter you name it, like Casablanca, Wizard of Oz, Lawrence of Arabia, The Sound of Music, like, so I'm super excited, like, this, this for me is a, could be the best summer at the cinema for years, <laughs> like, if, if that's the calibre of releases coming out over summer, then I'm all for this, like, yeah. I'll risk COVID. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to come to, I suppose, not to be the Debbie Downer on it, but I mean, you say the best summer of, uh, you know, in, and I and I know you mean it with sort of a, to take it with a pinch of salt, but at the same time. Yeah, absolutely, time, in terms uh, of the film lineup as opposed uh, absolutely, to. Yeah, because yeah, like, yeah. what are we walking back into? Like, our, you know, that lineup sounds great, it's mouth-watering there's all kinds of stuff from across you know sort of modern and not so modern film history and also like you said some contemporary releases as well and it would be nice to see things like today's feature the five bloods on a big screen if there was yeah. a possibility i don't know how that works in terms of the negotiation between the streaming service that's picked it up and and cinematically but we'll have to wait and see but where do you think we're going to be, though? I mean, I know it's just speculation, but do you envisage a situation where we're at sort of 25% capacity in a screen? It's got to be that there's limitations in Well, place. I think I read, I forget which, I think View had put their proposals to someone when we were talking about, um, we've, we've been having discussions about the, with the film festival that I work for, what we do there, and that's still still kind of in the planning stages of what we do and talking about whether you could, what the social distancing planning was, how much space you need to leave between seats and I think I forget which cinema it was but they were saying something like you can only book there's like two or three different seats apart you can this this viewing times will be staggered so not everyone leaves the screens at the same time so I think it will be a markedly different experience whether they'll expect you to wear a mask I know AMC um, who are Odeon's parent company I think have, have announced reopening they're not expecting customers to wear masks in the US whether that translates to the Odeons over here I don't know um, so whether or not you'll be expected to wear a mask for a whole film is up in the air I think it will be. You're definitely going to have less capacity in screenings. I can't see how they. I can't see how they cannot do it, um, and still maintain social distancing. Whether that's a quarter capacity or not, I don't know. Um, feasibly, yeah, it's a tricky one to answer. To be honest, yeah, I, I wonder. I mean, something that I'd advocate uh, certainly in this situation is earlier opening 
and later closing times. And I understand that there's this has got to fit into the business model and it's got to be profitable and so on, or at least, you know, if profitable is still a thing that the major chains are, are even dreaming of at the moment. But uh, yeah, if we could have an opening that was more like, I mean, this depends on the chain that you're going to, but more like sort of 9, 9.30 in the morning and have a bigger window of opportunity, albeit those screenings with fewer attendees and, you know, limited attendees because of the COVID situation and, and social distancing. Because something I find frustrating, but probably because I live on the doorstep of a, you know, a big cinema chain is that there'll often be, uh, you know, nothing before about midday. And if you have a full day free, you'd like to get there early and maybe fit something in in the morning when you're up and about. So, and the, you know, likewise, open later, show films late into the night. Why not? I mean, it's a, it's a way, not around the problem, but it's a, a way to sort of ameliorate the problem, surely, of having fewer people. Yeah, I've through. always thought earlier openings would be good as well, because there's a lot of times on days off where I just want to pop, you know, I would happily do a film in the morning and then go and do something else in the afternoon, or potentially means I can, or in terms of the, for the cinema's benefit, it means I can fit in three films in a day instead of two, or on a good mm. day, four instead of three. Um, like, mm. I'm not, I'm not adverse to sitting in the cinema all day, it's just sometimes it doesn't work out that way. So I'd be open, I'd be certainly open to early morning screen. Screenings. I don't see how they cannot. Um, I don't see how they cannot if they're going to have to stagger the screening times and make sure people aren't coming out at the same time and this kind of thing. So, I think it's a very interesting, interesting position to to, to that they find themselves in. I think what this what this Screen Daily article was saying was this this kind of package of films the cinemas have been offered of set is basically distribution saying to exhibition we value you and we need you and we want you to come back fighting, which I think is what kind of what the cinemas needed to hear with a lot of people with a lot of stuff being moved on to streaming. You had the big row between AMC and. Um, DreamWorks with the Trolls film um, coming out on VOD and, and skipping a theatrical run and they've said the company behind Trolls have said they'll release everything on VOD at the same time as cinema and that I've made Odeon say, um, sorry, AMC, the parent company of Odeon, just say we're not showing your films full stop now. So um, I think the cinemas weren't feeling the love from the distributors for sure. So I think this is certainly UK side, this is a good sign that they are saying, they are, look, they are going right, okay, streaming's there, but cinema is still important to us. Um, and I think that's been shown in the fact that a lot of the bigger films that I think a lot of people thought would drop onto streaming services have been held back for a theatrical release because Tenet will be expected to do a billion at the box office. It can't do a billion at the box office on home streaming services. So I think cinema is it's good that they're back. It's good that they're being seen as important, whether or not they can survive, whether or not how public perceive going to the cinema, I think will be a bigger indication in their survival, more, probably more than what they actually show. Yeah. And I mean, by all means, um, go back and, and jump into the episode that we did with Zig Bingham and James Ewan, where as people who work uh, within the industry of cinema um, and theatrical uh, screening of movies, they had some interesting insights into the position that that industry is in right now, because it feels to me like they've stared pretty long and hard into the abyss for a few months here and really looked over the edge into what could be a pretty, you know, pretty miserable, desolate future in terms of showing films theatrically. And what we'd hope for, and going back to that conversation, it sort of reminds me of that conversation, is that this is a sort of a push in the right direction. I mean, albeit a very um, regrettable one, but maybe, maybe there's a hope that cinema uh, distrib distribution chains or chains that show cinema uh, releases theatrically will use this as an opportunity to be more creative, to think a little bit outside the box and to come up with ways to make sure that they make their industry as future-proof as possible. Because... 
yeah, like I say, I mean, they've really had to, they've had a bit of a come to Jesus moment, I think, recently in terms, and like so many businesses, you mm. know, but it feels here like there's an opportunity to to push off in in the right direction, I guess, um, after the, the lockdown is, is sort of being eased and, and they're allowed to reopen, of course. Yeah, I know. I completely agree with that. I think it would be nice to see if we can take some positive out of this. If the, you know, if these classic films do well, then, I mean, we've seen, we've seen a bit of a resurgence of it. I think there was that week last summer where I said I'd seen, I think Jaws, The Matrix, and Don't Look Now in the same kind of fortnight fortnight period on the big screen, which was great. And it kind of dried up again. But I think there's certainly a longer term market for more classics on the big screen. Absolutely. Um, and I think, yeah, hopefully this it it may be that this is just a stopgap and they may go back to business as usual. Um, but I think yeah, you're absolutely right. Any any kind of major event like this is an opportunity for the business to look and see what works and see what doesn't. And maybe this will force them to try new ideas they wouldn't have been willing to try. So. Yeah. Mm. Do you think when do you think you'll go yeah. back? Is this is this a concern for you or? Um I I'm I'm a bit torn because I as you mentioned sort of on the top at the top I'm uh, like you a huge fan of the cinema experience and so when the cinema opens you know if I'm if I'm holding my hands up and being honest I'll probably be back almost immediately. Having said that, do I feel, you know, 100% at ease and comfortable with being enclosed in a room for two hours with a, a bunch of strangers? I guess not so much, but I trust that there will be measures in place. And if it doesn't seem like those measures are adequate, then obviously that would be what would persuade me to stay away for a while longer, you know? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm with you, to be honest. I think if you go back and like people are just sat next to you and no one's doing anything about it and no one's taking it seriously, I think I think I'm with you on that one. But I think... Uh, and this isn't this isn't the COVID nineteen politics show by a long stretch, but I think at some point with this uh, COVID situation, it will have to get to a point that we'll have to accept that it, there is a risk of catching the virus in some form of life, um, in something that you do, and there is an inherent risk to the, the disease. I guess being amongst the general population, that's not to say we should just go all guns blazing and just ignore everything and lift lockdown and everything should go back to normal. That's not what I'm saying in the slightest. But I think I'm with you, Pete. To be honest, if I walked into if I walked into the cinema and everyone was sat in a row and no one was doing anything about it then yeah I'd be inclined to walk straight back out I think as long as there's measures in place as long as they are proactively proactively looking like they're doing something about it and are aware of it and people are also aware of the risks um, then I think I'll probably be there day one as well I'd like I'd say I won't be but I'm lying to myself I'm desperate to go back to the cinema <laughs> yeah and I mean it's an absolutely pivotal PR moment for you know those big chains because any negative PR as to how they handle the return to the cinemas could be incredibly damaging so there's going to be very, very careful and, and, and long form strategic meetings about all the measures that need to be in place to sell this thing to the public so that you'll start getting that money, you know, coming back through the door. And, and one thing that came to me um, a couple of days ago thinking about this is also that a lot of the chains, uh, or at least a, a two or three of the, the major ones that, again, you'll know the names of, uh, have subscription services where uh, the punters pay. You know, we do this, obviously. We're obsessed with films and talk about them all the time. But pay a set amount of money each month and you can go to uh, uh, an unfettered amount of films. I don't even want to say it in the way that it is said <laughs> for a particular chain. But yeah, you can go to as many films as you like and you pay a certain amount of money each month. This has paused because of COVID-19, but as soon as it kicks back in, it's not going to be you know uh, viable with your customer base to say, well, I'm sorry, we're at 25% capacity. There are no tickets for a film after film after film after film. So you know, these conversations must have taken place, must be taking place. And, you know, you, you would hope that sensible decisions are made. Yeah, that's an interesting point, because I guess if you book with your card and then suddenly that screening's full up, 
then they're not going to be able to sell any further tickets for it, are they? So does that screening then just register as sold out? Do they say, oh, 50% of the 25% allocation goes to um, uh, membership card holders? Yeah, how does it work? I guess that, yeah, that is an yeah. interesting conversation to have. I, I mean, think. those cards are sold on the premise of being yeah. that your cinema going is unfettered, let's say, <laughs> but it's going to be distinctly fettered by yeah. restrictions for public health reasons. So, yeah, I mean, really interesting, fascinating time from a cinema point of view. Um, we have to look at it a bit dispassionately because that's the point of, you know, digging into these things on the show and all the disclaimers that, that we've sort of mentioned on Strangers Before stand, which are, you know, we're aware cinema, going back to the cinema and watching movies in a, in a you know, darkened room is not, you know, priority one when it comes to the state of the world right now. But it's really important to us and we know that it's really important to you as well. And that's why you're listening to this so uh, i'm glad we got to chat about it and i look forward to seeing what happens i guess i mean with just fingers crossed and and trying to be optimistic about the future as i think we all should be uh, as much as possible at the moment uh, paul i'm optimistic about the next section of our show it's the section of the show that we call <laughs> popcorn movies look at that for a segue uh, we'll be back in just a moment and we're going to discuss the movies that we've watched over the last seven days that's right after this Right, so back we are with Popcorn Movies. Um, as Pete said, this is the films we've watched recently. Uh, in this case, it was the last seven days because we're back on regular schedule, which excites me. I'm good to be here. Uh, we talked about this already, so I won't, won't, um, won't labour that point. Um, the first one I wanted to talk about was a film that's, I think, just dropped recently on Amazon Prime, um, and it is included in the Prime subscription, so you can watch it if you've got a Prime subscription. And for the most part, with a couple of caveats, I would say you definitely should watch um, The Vast of Night. Um, this is by a young director called Andrew Patterson um, to give the IMDb kind of um, the blurb. In the twilight of the 1950s on one fateful night in New Mexico, a young switchboard operator, Faye, and a charismatic radio DJ Everett discover a strange audio frequency that could change their small town and the future forever. So we're in kind of 50s, sort of classic 50s B-movie sci-fi territory here. Not too dissimilar in parts to kind of like Pontypool or that kind of thing. Um, although the the premise is different to Pontypool, there's lots of um, there's lots of long takes um, of people sat behind um, either radio desks or in one case a switchboard. Um, it's it's a good film, I would say, with with some caveats. I think it's it's nice that it pays homage to like the the golden age of sci-fi. I like that. There's some weird visual cues and decisions that I think kind of take you out of the film a little bit. There's kind of like, there's a few bits where you've got like, oh, am I watching an episode? It's tricks you into thinking, am I watching an episode of a series? And then there's kind of screens within screens. There's some longer takes of bits that I didn't think all of it worked particularly. I didn't think all of it worked. But overall, um, and it's overall, it's it's a pay, you have to be patient with it. It's a very, very slow burner. But I thought it was a thoroughly enjoyable um, slow burn sci-fi. Not for everyone, as I said, the pace is glacial in places without a shadow of a doubt. Um, but I, I thought there was enough good in this to uh, to give it a recommendation, to be fair. And I think Andrew Patterson is a director to watch for sure. And what's the name of the film again? Uh, that is The Vast of Night. And you said, sorry, you said at the outset, where is it streaming? Uh, Amazon Prime, it's on. So cool, yeah, Pete, cool. definitely check it out as well with a look. Yeah, yeah, I'm ca I'm catching up. I, I've got like a little list forming now of things that you've recommended on the show that I <laughs> promised to get to and then another week goes by. So yeah, there's a bit of a backlog, but I've definitely got to get to it. Uh, one that I think you've certainly seen and got to already, Paul, from me. I'm going to 
cluster a couple of mine together because they're not worthy of like ages of deep analysis. And if you want that deep analysis, maybe we'll start a side podcast to talk about films like Species from 1995. <laughs> uh, things to say about Species from 1995. Uh, first of all, Roger Donaldson, the director, has gone on to direct things like uh, The Bank Job. Of course, this is the same director who directed Tom Cruise in Cocktail. But then The Bank Job with Saffron Burrows and Jason Statham back in 2008, which I remember watching when I was in hospital in... Uh, in South Korea. Uh, so it, it's got a special place in my heart, I suppose, for that reason. Uh, yeah, Species is uh, what it is. Uh, species is a creature feature, obviously, about uh, the Canadian actress Natasha Henstridge's character, who is this... Um, in the shell of a beautiful woman lives a kind of malevolent uh, alien species that is out here to reproduce at any cost um and she is followed by the most ragtag of sort of unbelievable uh, people in a little cr- do you remember how species <laughs> yeah. actually operates as a Just movie followed by like the worst team of what looks like i don't know like they all met in the coffee shop and then went we're going to chase an alien it's a very weird special yeah. team of scientist isn't it yeah yeah scientists with the empath played by forrest whitaker who can just kind of like feel what's going on uh michael madsen sort of phoning in another performance in here uh, we've got a really young alfred molina or you know a great deal younger than now this was 1995 obviously uh, i think you know natasha henstridge is good in the movie i think the fact that a young michelle williams crops up uh, at the beginning of species is also a bit of a revelation something i completely forgotten about uh, so that's that was a treat for me and I like this movie, man. Like, it is dumb. It's super dumb. And, you know, you compare it to something that deals with ish similar territory, like Under the Skin, let's say. And we're in just (laughs) such wildly, wildly different uh, hands. Are you insinuating that Species is the superior film? I'm saying it is the the forerunner for Under the Skin. And and basically, yeah, uh, yeah, all of the ideas were stolen in that movie from Species. But yeah, I I mean, I enjoyed it. It's that kind of movie that you can bang on and you've seen it before and you kind of know how the killings go and you can quite enjoy it on its own merits. I mean, yeah, it's not a great work of cinematic art, but, but, you know, I've got a bit of love for Species and its ragtag of weird, incompatible characters. Uh, I'll I'll add one more in that is daft, Paul, before I throw back to you. This one, uh, everybody's seen pop up on their Netflix front page. It is The Wrong Missy, uh, a year, uh, uh, this year, uh, a film released from director Tyler Spindle. I don't know anything about him and I don't care because I've seen this movie. Uh, It stars David Spade. Do you get, what's David Spade about, Paul? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Like, I, I genuinely don't know. Like, if people know what David Spade is for, like, let us know. I don't get it. Because here he plays this guy in his mid-50s, because he is, uh, who goes on a business trip. But as you might have guessed from the incredibly inventive title, he invites the wrong Missy, both in the fact that he's the wrong woman and she's also called Missy. You couldn't write this stuff. Uh, The person that he invites by mistake is somebody that he had an abortive date with previously, played by Lauren Lapkus, who, to be fair, is the standout of the movie. She's uh, a very capable comic actress who just gets to turn it up to 11 and be absurd in this thing. Uh, What he wanted to do was invite the woman of his dreams that he met in between that abortive date and the the present day Uh, that doesn't quite work out and then would you believe it Paul they go away on the retreat and he starts to have feelings for the person that he thought was not suitable for him and was an embarrassment Uh, during these events you get to see uh, vomiting into a shark tank 
Um, you get to see lots of like falling over and falling off stuff. Uh, lots of kind of dick jokes and stuff like that. They're in there. None of it really works. I mean, testament to how much this movie doesn't work is they get Bobby Lee, the like, in my opinion, very capable comedy actor, inherently funny guy, to play a uh, to play a, a reception worker at the resort who gets like no lines. He's just right. there. He just appears and then they move on. The material's terrible. Lauren Lapkus is the only good thing about it, I would say. Uh, Nick Swardson. Like, Nick, what's Nick Swardson for at this point? Like, I'm not <laughs> sure. I feel like that boat sailed, but here he still is playing a schlubby, you know, wisecracking guy. I, d I don't know, man. Did you this enjoy this film more? <laughs> this was a film I watched at the very peak of my illness. And where I, I just sort of lost all of my dignity already. So I was like, you know what? All I deserve is whatever Netflix is serving up. And it was this slop. Uh, but yeah, the wrong Missy, not good. Uh, what's second for you, man? Uh, second up for me is a film called 21 Bridges, which I think came out late last year, possibly early this. Um, I forget the UK release date now. Um, this is stars, directed by Brian Kirk, stars Chadwick Boseman, Sienna Miller and J.K. Simmons. Um, it's basically, it's well, I'll give you the IMDb burb as I, as I like to do. An embattled NYPD detective is thrust into a citywide manhunt for a pair of cop killers after uncovering a massive and unexpected conspiracy. Um, if it sounds generic um, and run and kind of by the book, it really, really is. Um, it's fine at what it does. It's kind of like your old school hard bit, and I, I suppose Training Day comes to mind, um, or those kind of like any any kind of sort of nineties cop thriller, I guess, kind of comes to mind with this. Um, it's fine at what it does. Um, Chadwick, it's good to see Chadwick, Chadwick Boseman in a non-Black Panther role, and we'll get to that actually in The Five Bloods later. Um, and he's perfectly watchable as a leading man in here. I think he, he th I think he does a good enough job. So the action scenes are fine; they're enjoyable enough. The plot is incredibly predictable. Um, J.K. Simmons is good. I J.K. Simmons is is fine again. Everything's fine about this film. I don't know. I, I was kind of I was looking forward to this because I, I wanted I, I you know I, I always say this. I've got no problem with generic films. I've got no problem with films that hit all the genre tropes. I've got no problem with genre cliches to an extent because sometimes those work. You can have a good genre film and it doesn't need to be original. The problem with this is it's just an okay genre film. Um, I was expecting a really good genre film, and what I got was an all right genre film. Um, so it's it's fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I basically would echo your sentiments. I, I may have done a popcorn review on it when I saw it in the cinema, whenever it was that it came out. But yeah, I basically agree. And do you know what it makes me think? Or made me think of when you're saying like, I don't mind a generic film, but it's got to be a bit, bit better than this. Triple nine, Paul. Triple Nine was an underrated movie. Yeah. And I feel I feel like if you thought this was a bit limited, yeah, have a little rescreening of Triple Nine. Uh, and you might remember that it's actually a cut above this. But yeah, I, I like Chadwick, Chadwick Boseman quite a bit. But you're right. I mean, it, the, the funny thing about it is because it is so generic, when I went to the cinema to see it, it really fulfilled a role. It was like very much like, I know what I'm doing here. I know what we're doing together for an hour and a half. I'm yeah. not totally <laughs> proud of it, but it's cool. Uh, getting my rocks off in a sort of action filmish way. So, yeah, uh, I agree, man. It's not not anything above that, really. It's no great shakes. Oh, no great shakes. We can segue straight into Anon from 2018. 
First of all, why would you call a film anon? Anon, the, the abbreviation of anonymous, from the director Andrew Nichol, who knows his way around an anonymous film. Um, yeah, I don't know. This is the same director who brought us uh, such treasures as In Time, which, to be fair, I'm throwing shade. In Time's not too bad. It is bad. I, it's a ridiculous it, concept that makes absolutely no sense. I quite like the concept. <laughs> I felt like the kind of high concept of it was the best thing about it. Maybe the execution was a bit tired uh, and keep that in mind because we're getting to this thing uh, Anon is a movie that uh, stars Clive Owen uh, first of all that's a point at which I'm not jazzed for a thing because I'm not <laughs> the biggest Clive Owen fan if I'm completely candid uh, alongside Clive Owen in this is an actress that I think I used to like and I'm feeling is increasingly a sort of um her name is sort of watchword for mediocrity and blandness. And I feel like I'm being a bit horrible on today's show, maybe because I'm a bit tired. But that's Amanda Seyfried. Amanda Seyfried has made a lot of mediocre films at this point. They're stacking up at a rate. Uh, this one, Anon, is this really sort of... It's very much reaching for a sort of um, high-tech aesthetic. Um, you think about something like a David Cage video game. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. what was the, the last one, the big one? Um, you know what I'm talking about. Detroit Become Human. Yeah. It feels a bit like that, but as a movie. So you've got actual overlays on the screen of sort of digital information in a sort of heads-up display style. Uh, here you've got a future, a sort of dystopian future where people have have an implant so they're able to sort of scan Terminator-esque the environment and the people around them, yeah. right? One day early in the film, opening scene, I think, Clive Owen sees a woman in the street who is unscannable. And this is the character played by Amanda Seyfried. And it turns out that she has a reason that she's unscannable, which is that she is able to go in and delete memories. In essence, uh, wipe clean the video recording that everyone is making all the time. Because whenever you look at something, it's being recorded because th those are the rules of the game when it comes to this future. And so far, so intriguing. But like, Andrew Nichol is so devoted to the idea that you know, this is high tech. Look how high tech it is. Look at like Drake Deramus. You know, those Drake Deramus yeah. movies that are about the future. <laughs> where you're like, oh, my God, how have you made this so tedious? Like you've got all this technology and you've got all this budget that you've somehow sent me to sleep with. So, <laughs> yeah, Anon is one of those. I mean, it's drifted into obscurity, but you fucking called it Anon. I mean, I don't know what to say to you with 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 that approach to marketing. It's it's a shame. Um, the world just feels like airless and 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 lifeless but not in the way that i think it was intended to be as such you know uh, this happened with things like that film equals that drake deramus made where the film is supposed to be about people who lack emotion but then the film itself lacks emotion and i don't care so yeah shame this is only like two years old but it seems 12 years old easily uh, the last one, Paul, and then I'll stop talking at such a rate, is uh, one that I've actually reviewed for Clapper that I know you've done re reviews more than me. You've done reviews for uh, online. Good site. Check it out, guys. There's a little plug. Uh, Clapper Limited. See, now you do it. It's fine. Clapperlimited.co.uk, <laughs> guys. Get yourselves over there. Uh, you'll probably b bump into Paul's reviews and not mine because so far they add up to one. And it is for... <laughs> A documentary called The Dilemma of Desire, but this is really good. Uh, it's a documentary that is all about uh, what uh, an artist called Sophia Wallace dubbed 
cliteracy, basically educating the world about the issues related to female sexual pleasure and like empowerment and uh, a sense that we want to change the run of things uh, or the filmmakers anyhow want to change the run of things in terms of the male domination or dominance of the sphere of even like academic research into sexuality is so lopsidedly in favour of uh, male subjects, male issues, male topics and concerns and so on. It's directed by Maria Finizzo. Uh, this one, it shifts around between like talking heads from the likes of Sophia Wallace, uh, Tai Chang, who works for um, like an adult, like a sex toy company effectively, who are producing sex toys with female desire in mind rather than sort of male visual gratification. Uh, then people who are going through various uh, sort of myriad difficulties related to the expression of their own sexuality in the world. It feels quite vital. It feels quite necessary. Hopefully it won't get buried in these strange times that we're in. It was due to be screened at South by Southwest, but obviously with that being cancelled, it'll fall into a streaming distribution whenever that might be. It's not available as of right now uh, for wide screening, but keep your eyes out and keep your, your ears open because The Dilemma of Desire is really good and, and I big it up. And that's not just because I reviewed it for, for that website, but because I think it's genuinely interesting work and, and, and sort of fresh feeling work as well. So it's a recommendation from me. And that brings us to the end of Popcorn Movies, does it not, Paul? It does, yes. So we'll be back after this brief break with the fairly, well, the recentest feature we've, we've started to call Stream Team. So, Paul, we are back. This section, as you say, is Stream Team. This is where we basically shifted out a section of the show. We used to do coming attractions, as you may know. We previewed cinematic releases coming up that week. That doesn't seem so relevant at the moment. So we've put Stream Team here instead to recommend some things that you might enjoy streaming on various platforms. We're trying to be fairly uh, egalitarian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I mean, we know that a lot of people have certain platforms, but... We're going to shift it around week to week. So this week, anyway, for what it's worth, Paul, um, what have you got first? First, uh, I've but failed miserably, and both of mine are on Netflix this week. So uh, <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> people like Netflix, though. That's true. A lot of people have Netflix. So yeah. Um, first up, I wanted to talk about a film that I have only watched the once in the cinema, and my word, did it knock shit out of me when I watched it. Um, and that is a positive. Uh, that is a positive description of it. A really well put together review that's deserving of publishing in any publication. Uh, it knocks shit out. <laughs> it knocks shit out of me. Five stars. <laughs> uh, this is um, sorry. Uh, this is first reformed, um, directed by Paul Schrader, starring Ethan Hawke. Weirdly enough, Amanda Seyfried is also in this film um, and is very good in this. And this is not an average film that Amanda Seyfried's in. This is a very good film that Amanda Seyfried is in. Um, it basically kind of discusses. It looks at uh, Ethan Hawke plays a priest. Um, who is going through um, a pretty rough time. Um, he grapples with mounting despair brought on by tragedy, world concerns, and a tormented past, according to IMDb. Um, that's an understatement compared to what he's going through, but it's an incredible performance from Ethan Hawke. It's a really, really well-made film. Um, enjoy, perhaps, is the wrong word, but it's just a very powerful piece of work. And it's what I like about, what I really liked about this film is the fact that it kind of explores, you think, okay, if you are a priest, people come to you, and burden you with all of their things that are going badly for them, like everything. Like, so everyone's week, everyone's bad week is going to be unloaded on you. At some point, that surely would have a negative effect on someone's psyche. And the film, I think, kind of looks at that element of the side of being a priest, and I think it does a really good job of it. Coupled with Ethan Hawke's performance, and just an absolutely superb end 
It's one of the end. One of the one of the we ever get to the top five endings. This might be on the list. It's just the it's just the superb end to the film, which I won't spoil here. But um, yeah, it's just a really really powerful film, and I thought it was a, a sort of um, a really good return to form for Paul Schrader, really, when it came out in 2017. So um, yeah, check out First Reformed now streaming on Netflix. That's 2017. Yeah, it's terrifying, Man, isn't it? Oh, 2018, actually. Okay, okay. That oh, sorry, makes the, me feel the, like... the date says 2017, then it says released 2018. So possibly, okay. yeah, but even so. I feel like I saw it about six months ago and I saw it relatively soon after release. Time is going by quickly these days. Uh, one from me then, Paul, uh, same year, I guess, uh, it's 2018 release. This one streaming on Netflix as well. Uh, it's from director Tamara Jenkins. The film is Private Life. Have you seen this, Paul? Uh, no. I would recommend it. I mean, that's why it's here, obviously. That's why it's here. <laughs> but I would recommend it for a couple of reasons. Uh, this is a story, really sort of rich, grown-up screenplay, first of all, that deals with um, a couple who are in their 40s, I guess, who are going through um, IVF because they want to have a child and so far it hasn't been possible. Uh, they are played by Paul Giamatti in, in the male role, obviously, and Catherine Hahn, an actress who I just think is still just desperately underrated. Mm. Uh, it watched something like Afternoon Delight and come back to me. I mean, that's a film that's underrated, but that's a story for another time. Uh, this one, though, um, into their relationship comes uh, a younger girl who is... Uh, in herself, a sort of catalyst for change in their lives, I suppose. Um, and herself maybe offers them a possible, you might see where I'm going with this, but a possible other solution to their difficulties. But that's all to be enjoyed when you get to the film. Um, Tamara Jenkins' uh, screenplay, as I said, really good, well-directed, well-handled, and the kind of movie that you might stumble into on Netflix or watch because you've got a very very well um, articulated review on, on something like Strangers in a Cinema and, <laughs> and realise that uh, this was like a gem that was sort of hidden in plain sight. Uh, currently holding a meta score of 83, if that convinces you anymore. But yeah, Private Life's really, really good, man. Like a really good bit of like grown-up drama and I liked it a great deal. And I really like Catherine Hahn too and also watch Afternoon Delight. What's second for you, Paul? Uh, second for me is Apostle, which I talked about, I think, on my top something films on Netflix a few a few episodes back, probably back in the last year, I think. Uh, this is Apostle, directed by Gareth Evans, um, which is a film that I that has picked up mixed reviews, not from me, because I genuinely love this film. I absolutely, I just thought it was absolutely superb. It resonated with me a lot. Um, I'm a big fan of weird horror films and I'm a big fan of Gareth Evans and this ticks both of those boxes. Uh, Dan Stevens, I think, is great in this, kind of playing um, playing against the type that you normally see him playing, like the suave, the suave kind of gentleman. He plays against type here. Um, he's a drifter that goes on to, that goes to a, an island, visits a cult on an island to rescue his sister um, from this from this kind of weird religious order. Um, and things do not go to plan and things go very wrong for him. Um, it is not a film for the faint of heart. It's incredibly gory in places, but I'm always a big fan of inventive and well-done gore. And Gareth Evans is very, very good at that. Um, I found this to be very, very atmospheric, highly entertaining, and one of my favourite horrors in recent years, I think. Um, and I stand by it. I know people don't like it, and I understand that it won't be for everyone, but I stand by Apostle as being absolutely brilliant, and that's my second recommendation for this week. 
Nice. Um, uh, another one that's a bit uh, squeamish. Squeamish? That's the wrong word. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a bit icky in a kind of like, you know, it's an awful lot, a bit like a possel, uh, is my second recommendation for this week. It's on Prime Video. This one is Killer Joe. Killer Joe is directed by William Freakin and came on the uh, follow as the follow up, I think, to Bug. Um, I think Bug and then, it was that order, wasn't it? Bug and then yeah. and then this one. Bug is fantastic, by the way. If you haven't caught up with that yet, I don't think it's currently streaming on any of the major you can streaming rent sites. It. I rented it and watched it. See, you recommended me a film and I watched it. That was a nice. while ago, admittedly, but <laughs> nice. Yeah. Bug is uh, great. Yeah, but yeah, this uh, Killer Joe, the film I'm talking about, is this sort of southern fried tale of. Uh, backstabbing sort of double crossing family of uh, reprobates but uh, it is written by Tracy Letts who's got quite a hit rate as a writer at this point I mean Tracy Letts wrote um, Bug and he wrote this and he wrote uh, August Osage County as well and his next project after that is the Joe Wright movie the next Joe Wright movie The Woman in the Window so um, yeah some uh, Tracy Letts obviously also an actor and a playwright and so on but uh, really strong screenplay I thought this again a bit like you said about um apostle it might not be for everyone there might be you know there's a chicken bone scene that was some people found problematic and i understand it and it's quite out there and some people have now cancelled emile hirsch and i also understand that but uh, juno temple's in here i really like her i've watched most everything that she's done this is matthew mcconaughey when he was right on that turn you know when he's on that turn the mcconnaissance or whatever people called it where he stopped doing yeah, he stopped doing lean on stuff movies and he started doing like, you know, I've got a character and a bit of depth type movies. So, um, yeah, Killer Joe's good if you like that sort of thing. And if you know later day sort of William Freakin or just William Freakin in general, then you'll know maybe whether you're on board with this or not. But yeah, Killer Killer Joe is on Prime Video right now. That brings us to the end of Stream Team, which means, Paul, we'll take another little break. Um, we will have a little sip of water and then we'll be back for a feature-length review of The Five Bloods, the new one from Spike Lee on Netflix, right after this. Right, and back we are. I'm very excited to be here for this one because I, yeah, The Five Bloods, the latest film from Spike Lee, um, set and tells the story of four uh, African-American Vietnam vets who, um, again, I'm going to go on DB here, battle the forces of men and nature when they return to Vietnam, seeking the remains of their fallen squad leader and the gold fortune he helped them to hide. Um, Pete, um, do what I didn't do and set it up better than just reading the IMDb description. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's tough, isn't it? Because that's a pretty succinct way of doing it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you basically got a, an establishing sort of very Spike Lee-ish uh, opening to this movie where he montages um, B-roll, film reel and uh, interview footage from the likes of Muhammad Ali, for example, uh, speaking candidly about his opinion on um, being drafted, the potential to be drafted or conscripted to go to the Vietnam War, to fight in a war against people who have never, as he, and I, I'm going to butcher what he actually said, you can go back and watch the clip and I, I'm sure many people are familiar with it, but where he says, you know, these are not the people who've chased me, these are not the people who've beaten me up, like what, what, uh, 
axe do I have to grind with the Vietnamese people effectively, to, to paraphrase his words. Um, and this kind of stuff sets the scene for some sequences from and around the Vietnam War. Footage, uh, famous images, um, of course, the, the burning monk, um, things like the Viet Cong uh, leader who gets shot through the head in that famous image. Before we then go from um, Saigon and the fall of Saigon, footage of the fall of Saigon, and then we get a change of aspect ratio into modern day Ho Chi Minh City, as it's now called, of course, and the reuniting of these uh, friends, effectively, who are all former Vietnam vets or current Vietnam vets. I guess you always you continue to be a Vietnam vet, but uh, who served together in the Vietnam War and are meeting up for a trip to modern day Ho Chi Minh City to reconnect with the place that they left and the complicated feelings that they have about that place in hindsight. So with that all in mind, here's a little clip. To love one another. Go ahead. You want to tear each other apart? Go on. Go on. I hope that we could be bloods one more time. But no, that ain't gonna never happen again because of this. Traded brotherhood for this shit. Right, Paul? That motherfucker walked back with two feet, though. Eddie, you black as a damn crow. Ain't white like snow. And if you didn't know, if you ain't got no dough, then you don't go. And that's for damn show. So this is uh, Spike Lee's uh, first film since Black Klansman, uh, which we both liked. I think you probably more than me. I had some reservations, I think, at the time about how it felt like at times it was, not that it wasn't subtle enough, but he kind of, where Spike Lee at the end kind of, Bought in the um, bought in the the recent race riots, and I thought that was slightly heavy handed. Um, and Spike Lee is a heavy handed filmmaker. There's no doubt in that. And I think, but for me, like so, what this is, I was expecting this to 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 be a fairly heavy handed film, and maybe expecting to have share some of the minor gripes I had with Black Klansman. And I think the first thing I noticed for me here, Pete, is that I really didn't share those concerns with this film in the slightest. And I think for me, I think Spike Lee set out his agenda quite early on here, in that he started out with using real footage and he just kept interspersing it throughout the whole film which for me means, meant it felt it felt like a more cohesive film I think at times than Black Handsman I think would be the first thing that jumps out at me no one would expect Spike Lee to be a subtle filmmaker at this point or not make a film with an agenda he's just not going to do that and why should he um, in all honesty there's no reason the man should do that Mate, and I wouldn't want he, him to when and he I think... does that you get a remake of Old Boy so we got to be careful what we wish for yeah <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. When he doesn't set out a film with the agenda, you get old boy or inside job, uh, which it, also wasn't it, which inside also wasn't man. Yeah. Inside man, sorry, inside man. Um, yeah, so like he's obviously coming to this with something to say. The film for me, it's it hit it hits hard from the outset. Pete, what did, what did you think of this? The kind the spice. Well, of I it? I want to pick up on the language that is really interesting because you said at the outset, like in response to Black Klansman, and we discussed that. Go back and, and listen to that episode, of course, and and you know there's more on our feelings, but um, that he can be a heavy hand film director and heavy-handed in this context is usually a negative right like a criticism like there's not a lot mm. of subtlety or uh, maybe things are mishandled or, or not handled with care but then if you shift into the world of boxing for example being heavy-handed is a plus it's a compliment it means yeah. that you can knock guys out it means that when your fists land they make an impact and I find that to be a really interesting um, sort of uh, little microcosm on Spike Lee because 
from my point of view, with something like Black Klansman, what it felt like at the end of that movie, and I'm not getting back into that review, but what it felt like was a real gut punch of a, like, I've kept this until now mm. and I'm going to give it to you and it's going to be bracing and then you've got to walk back out there and deal with the world outside. But I totally buy what you're saying about how this felt more cohesive. And I suppose that heavy-handed thing will probably stay in my mind now as we go forward with this review, but that, like... Spike Lee is the kind of director who throws a lot of punches and when they land they're impactful. It doesn't mean that occasionally he won't miss a punch, he won't miss a shot, but this is a film that hits you from all kinds of angles with like this variety of blows and it's not all violence and it's not all aggression but there's a lot of that there and there needs to be a lot of that there because this is very much a film as you say that has an agenda as you would expect from Mr Spike Lee uh, particularly in the year of our Lord 2020 in which the film seems about as prescient as it could be being released now. Like I heard uh, or read, I should say, some talk of um, the unfortunate fact that this was going to be released cinematically, of course, this summer, and maybe Spike Lee's been robbed of that and the audience that that would bring. But at the same time, being released on streaming when everybody's at home, it's going to have a very big audience on a sort of streaming level. And maybe it's just about exactly the right time for the movie to come along, given all the events that are kicking off around the world. And Spike Lee has sort of melded a load of things together or folded in a lot of issues and concerns when it comes to race relations in America, the Trump presidency, the legacy and sort of shadow, looming shadow of the Vietnam conflict. All of these things are at play while still making a film that is entertaining, episodic and, in inverted commas, enjoyable. Discuss. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that one. As I said, he, he doesn't pull his punches. There, there, it's absolutely making a point that it needs to make. But at the same time, he's wrapped it up in, and for the most part, and a very, a very entertaining film. Um, he's wrapped it up in this kind of, um, boys. Well, it's, it's an interesting. He's kind of reworked a Vietnam film, hasn't he? With the guys, with the the group of veterans going back to look for the remains of, look for the remains of their um, um, commanding their the CO essentially. Um, played by Chadwick Boseman here, um, Stormin Norman, his name is, which is a great name, um, and the remains of gold that they they left behind when they were when they were previously in Vietnam. Um, so it kind of it tells that story. So you've got the adventure of this kind of like the old the boy the boys are back together again, going back on this adventure like reliving their glory days. You've got that element which is quite enjoyable, and actually the the cast the cast have incredible chemistry together. I think I would say it's fair to say in this. Um, you've got some of my favorite some of my favorite TV actors actually appear in this you've got Clark Peters who was in The Wire Isaiah Whitlock Jr. also in The Wire who gets to say shit again which is one of my favorite moments um um you've got um uh Norm Lewis here um a young Jonathan Majors a younger actor plays Delroy Lindo's son Delroy Lindo's kind of the main maybe the main character is too strong but there's a lot of focus on Delroy Lindo's character who gives an absolutely superb performance in this I think it's I think it's fair to say so you've got those elements those guys have all got great chemistry together it's fun to watch them on screen it's fun to watch them play off each other and it's fun to watch them banter together but at the same time Pete as you say there's more there's more to it than that there's more to it than that and like when the film makes it when when the film makes its points it makes its points incredibly effectively and incredibly well 
Um, and I think it's just it's just one of those films where everything just comes together remarkably well for me. The script, the performances, Spike Lee's direction. I just I I really really rate this well, film. Well, I let's really, look really at one like. of the things that it does do, Paul, and maybe compare one established aging film director with another. Because of course, it's hard to talk about uh, *The Five Bloods* <laughs> without mentioning the fact that we have flashbacks here. But in the flashbacks to the Vietnam War, it is the actors of age in present, like their present day mm. age, that are depicted here which creates this, I think, quite clever uh, sort of visual language for the fact that they've never really left. You know, as is said, I think, later on in the film, what you learn about war when you've been in war is that it never ends. And for these guys, it's never ended. So when they reminisce, it's like they're there in the present day. Unlike, of course, uh, a certain uh, Mr. Marty Scorsese, who went with this de-aging technology to put those actors back into the you know travails of the past. And I just think it's an interesting comparison kind of and and just thinking about maybe the effectiveness not that necessarily either one of them should have taken a different approach but I just found Spike Lee's approach to this a little bit more engaging perhaps and less distracting um, once you get over the hump of thinking like what's going on why are they you know a- aged and then yeah. here and what's the chronology uh, once it makes sense and falls into place I thought that worked really well do you agree with that or did it did it feel jarring at all I think to start with it to start with I was just like what like, what's going on here? And then I thought, no, actually, I like this. Actually, I like that quite a lot. He didn't use younger actors and he didn't use he didn't use de-aging. And I thought, no, I, I get this. And I, I kind of, yeah, it resonated with me the same bit it resonated with you, Pete. It took me a little while. And I thought, no, I see what you're doing here. Like, it's that they've never left. And this is them in this is them in Vietnam now, and I thought it, it worked remarkably well. Um, and the, just the film, I thought looked fantastic. The um, the, sw- the 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 messing around with aspect ratios as they kind of zoom into flashbacks and then pull back out into into the current climate. It never felt the the change of aspect ratio is something that a lot of filmmakers have experimented with, um, and it's not always got right. But I think mm. it worked really well here, um, and it's all like the kind of. The way that the, the aspect ratio zoomed in and then zooms out, but the transition on screen is almost seamless. Like it looked incredible the way mm. that the way that was done, um, and I thought the film looked ap- absolutely totally. And, it, and it's throughout. again like a clever use of visual language because how the film set up, as we were discussing, is through this um, you know uh, news footage and so on, which is all in four three uh, sort of boxy aspect ratio. Yeah. So you've already got in mind that whenever we're in that ratio, we're in the past, and when we open up to something wider, we're in the present time so it makes like you say those transitions pretty seamless not only visually but sort of cognitively as well as you're watching the film and and keeping up with yeah. what what is going on between the group incidentally i've seen a, a thing here that i didn't know before i did this bit of research i'm not not that well informed that actually the central five guys including the david character who plays the son uh are the names so this is paul melvin otis eddie and david are the names of the temptations oh i didn't know that yeah yeah it's a little nice yeah. little nod <laughs> yeah. there and I mean, there's, there's like references throughout it, isn't there? I mean, there's multiple references to Apocalypse Now yeah. in the movie. Uh, there's at least one uh, Bridge on the R- River Kwai reference. There, there, like a load of sort of cine-literate mm. stuff here as well, if you like that sort of thing. And uh, if you're looking out for it, I suppose. Like a, another dimension on which you, or by which you can enjoy the movie, I guess. Uh, further things, Paul. We've got Paul Walter Hauser and Jasper Pekkanen. Pekkanen, let's say. I'm not from Finland. Uh, who returned from Black Klansman. And Paul Walthauser is this actor that I've been trying to mention on the show a bunch because I just feel like he's been doing good work uh, on things like Kingdom. He did that um, Clint Eastwood movie about the foiled bombing uh, that I talked about recently. Uh, yes. I can't even remember what yeah, that's, that's called. That's where I recognise him from, yeah. 
but but yeah, he's good in that. He's he's decent here for for the amount of time that he's on screen, and it kind of seems like maybe there's a relationship there with him and Spike Lee having cast him and indeed Jasper Pakenham as well in in both of his last two movies. But other than that, we've just got this talented black cast, um, and like you say, across the board, really strong performances, and also uh, just sort of performances that are full of of character I guess and life like these guys never feel interchangeable sometimes you get you know like military grunt types where you kind of forget which one is which one because you see them in military yeah. sequences and maybe it's easy to to blur those lines but that doesn't happen here so that's to the film's credit as well I mean yeah help me out Paul is there anything else in particular that, that um, comes to mind yeah, about I just, the movie? for me it just it's one of those one of those rare for, I, I kind of went into thinking okay this will be like this will be a good this will be a solid Vietnam film director by Spike Lee I kind of thought you couldn't do much different with the Vietnam films and maybe this would just fit into another one of those but for me this felt very different to the Vietnam films that have come previous to it um it feels like on first view and it feels like to me it deserves to slot alongside some of the very best like I I honestly it's one of the one of the rare films that had me from the first minute and did not let me go until the closing minutes and if it wasn't for the the Netflix credits thing where it just flicks off the credits far too quickly at the end I probably would have sat through the credits and thought yes like that really that film really really got me i have to say i i do feel like it was definitely robbed of a cinematic release i think minimum like i think if you watch this on um a tv speaker or even tv and soundbar you're not going to get the full impact of this film like this film had me in this film had me in goosebumps had me in tears at points and i think a lot of that was definitely down to the sound design i think this film desperately needs a cinema release or um or 11 speakers in your lounge as chad just saying um but yeah but all joking and, and yeah the, I, joke, I jest at that but it needs it needs a very it needs a big screen and big sound to really really get the most out of this film i think that's that's where it may suffer in certain people's eyes what do you think Pete? yeah well i was just going to add on to what you're saying about the sound design the soundtrack yeah. itself i mean it's got this fantastic soundtrack i mean it, and again i may well be wrong i've seen the movie once at this point and i'm going to go back to it but uh isn't there an acapella version of what's going on yeah i believe so where yeah. they cut away yeah. all the music and it's beautiful it's like really elegantly handled amidst all of the chaos and all of the sort of scenes of tension or violence i mean we haven't even touched upon uh, and touch upon is i guess uh, the the right <laughs> yeah. way to describe this the sequence with the thing where the guy can't move and I don't want to say more than that Again, but that, fans of that moment like literally jump I, I did not see it coming did not see it coming there's a couple of moments in this film which yeah without spoiling them I mean you're probably looking for them now but yeah like there's a couple of moments that will just catch you catch you off guard. And when that happens again, like the sound design on that moment is just is just superbly superbly well handled, and it will yeah it will knock you out of your seat for sure. Yeah, in fans of a, a, a movie that I've tried to push on this show, uh, Kajaki um, might uh, get a similar sense of horrible sort of agonizing tension in that scene, as will probably everybody else. Um, but yeah, so much good to be said about this, Paul, and like. Like we say, the cinema's loss is certainly Netflix gain. And like we can't, no one can attend the cinema right now, at least for the next no. few weeks. So make sure you catch up with uh, De Five Bloods as soon as you can, really. I would say this has got to be up there in the in the top sort of handful of Netflix releases that we've seen over the lifespan of Netflix UK, I, I would say. Um, at least a top 10 or... I think it might be. I'm going to throw it out there. I think it might be my favourite Spike Lee film now. I ha I've only watched this one once, in fairness but I think it may well be my favourite Spike Lee film. Honestly, I can't, 
can't speak for how much I love this film. It was I just had it was just an incredible experience, and I was gripped for the entirety of the two and a half hours. Yeah, and rare. I mean, it seems like he's sort of building up ahead of steam in terms of a, a late career resurgence, perhaps depending on your feeling about sort of mid career mm. Spike Lee stuff. But uh, you know, I liked more than most, maybe uh, more than most people I talk to, Chirac. But like since Chirac, we've had Passover, which I haven't seen, uh, haven't caught up with, and then we've had Black Klansman, and then this, and it seems like at least from your side. Like what you're saying is maybe the output's getting better and better, which is exciting for, you know, the next couple of years and hopefully yeah. the next thing he's involved in. This could have been an Oliver Stone movie with four white protagonists, did you know? Uh, it was in development that way and it didn't go that way. And, you know, all the be- all the better for it. Oh, really? So, oh, wow. Okay. I'm yeah. Glad, I'm glad yeah, that's not the case. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah absolutely. The five whites. Um <laughs> maybe but uh yeah <laughs> great stuff man great stuff uh, glad we got to do a proper review on it uh, chat about it we'd love to chat about it more if you have opinions about the five bloods obviously stick them in the comments either on the the twitter or the instagram let us know what you think we'll put up a post there and uh and we'd like to hear from people we're like like we do on anything that we talk about on the show but paul that brings us i guess unless you have you got any final comments or do you, do you feel like we've adequately covered this one no, just watch it. It's it's brilliant. Honestly, absolutely brilliant. It's, it's if it's not near to the top of my films of the year list, I'll be very surprised. Um, so yeah, I just honestly, I can't recommend the Five Bloods highly enough. Find someone with a big with a lot of speakers if you can, because that will help it. And if you if there's any way to push for a cinematic release for it, then do that because it is well worth seeing on the big screen. If they get if they do show it on the big screen, definitely check it out there because it deserves that. But it is regardless. Yeah, and it. and a just very, a, a final film. thing. I mean, two and a half hours zips by here. Uh, it, this might be, you know, slight, um, slightly off-putting for certain people, just the sheer runtime of the thing. But yeah, just trust us. It, it won't feel like that amount of time. So yeah, get on it. Uh, Paul, to close out the show, we have a section called credits. Do you have anything in particular that you want to pay credit to this week? Uh, I do very briefly. So I replayed uh, the video game The Last of Us because The Last of Us 2 has come out today. Um, I've been working and my wife's been playing it, so I haven't had a chance to have a go on it yet, which is unusual for me in a video game. Uh, however, so I replayed the, the first game, The Last of Us, but for the first time I played the uh, the Left Behind DLC, uh, where you get to play as Ellie, um, the female protagonist from The Last of Us. Um, and it's only sort of two hours, but it's a very, very good two hours of video gaming. If you haven't revisited Last of Us for a while and haven't played the DLC, I would recommend you do so. Um, I'm not going to give away any spoilers. It takes a very, very different approach to the core video game itself, but it really does um, add even more context to the Ellie character and his great preparation for what I'm sure will be an incredible Last of Us 2 if my wife ever lets me play it. Nice. Um, I'm going to throw one in that I can't believe I haven't done yet, but I think it's because of the release coming somewhere in between episodes. But uh, this one is uh, RTJ4, Paul. It's RTJ4. It's Run the Jewels. They've released another album. It's called RTJ4 to follow up RTJ3, RTJ2, and of course, RTJ1. This one, I I can't, I'm not going to do like a big Anthony Fantano style uh, album review, but I would say, in my humble opinion, it's right in the top two of the four records it's an angry it's an angrier record than rtj3 was there's less there's less big commercial bangers on it yeah I yeah i i kind of i mean this is a different podcast i guess but like i kind of felt a bit middling on rtj3 as much as i like parts of it a great deal um and maybe felt like rtj2 is the best record but like you know who cares i'm talking about rtj4 for right now and i particularly want to just draw attention to for the uninitiated there's a track in there called walking in the snow which for me is maybe the standout right now have you listened to this paul at any length at this point 
I've only listened to the album once so far, in fairness, so I'm not that au fait with it at this point. I know there's a track called Goonies vs. E.T. or something similar, which is which I gravitated towards straight away, but no. Uh, I have heard it. I have heard the album once through, but only so once so So just in light of, of the current state of things, walking along, listening to the record for maybe the second time, I don't think I, I picked up on it first time round. There's a verse from Killer Mike, of course, RTJ, Run the Jewels of Killer Mike and LP, two guys. Uh, and the verse, a part of it, runs like this. Uh, in the light of reviewing a Skype, uh, Spike Lee movie, I guess. Uh, they promise education, but really they give you tests and scores and they predict prison population by who's scoring the lowest. And usually the lowest scores the poorest and they look like me. And every day on the evening news, they feed you fear for free. And you so numb, you watch the cops choke out a man like me until my voice goes from a shriek to a whisper. I can't breathe. I just stopped dead, man. Like, and and I had this kind of thought about it, which initially as a white man, uh, walk, I thought, wow, how um, serendipitous, maybe that's the wrong word, like how coincidental in a sort of fortunate way is it that he's got a line as impactful as that that he would have written long before the George Floyd incident uh George Floyd excuse me uh and then you realize no that gets to exactly the heart of it because the George Floyd incident is not the incident the incident is years of this kind mm. of behavior this kind of brutality and this kind of injustice and of course there's a line like this on the record because this is regular lived experience. And so, yeah, I mean, this happens to me a couple of times a year when a, a bar in a, on a hip-hop record just stops me dead. And, and that one, wow, man, like, wow. So, yeah, I mean, we're all doing, I, I guess, and, and I suppose I hope, like enough sort of self-educating and reading up and trying to be more engaged. And some of that can come across a bit token and it can just be people, you know, trying to virtue signal online or make people aware that they're definitely not slacking when it comes to sort of Black Lives Matter and that kind of awareness. But engage with black voices like this is what I feel about it, man. Like watch black film directors, listen to rap music from like people who are producing important stuff engage with the culture as well as the the rhetoric that you feel you know therefore lets you off the hook in terms of having to feel any guilt i think it's an important component of the whole discussion so yeah rtj4 is the point it's really good it's a good hip-hop record but like that was something uh really something yeah i don't yeah absolutely um i don't know where to go with that so we'll go with the socials um that brings us to the end of the show um we'll be back next week um for sure uh and you can find us on at strangers cinema on twitter strangers in a cinema on facebook and instagram so tap us up there or if you want to email us uh, not that anyone uses email anymore, but strangers in a cinema at gmail.com. Nice. Yeah. And, and any correspondence we get there, we will endeavor to respond in short order. And it's great to start a discussion with people who listen to this at any time. Um, but now more than ever, I think there's loads to talk about. So get on it. And um, I guess we'll see you in a week's time. Goodbye. Shut up and sit down.